0: It's a pleasure to have you listening to my show today. My sincerest desire is for you to get something from it that will make your life richer, fuller, and safer. My name is Reverend Wynn Henderson. As an ordained Christian minister and a retired medical doctor, I have a dual perspective to bring you content to solve problems in your life. This podcast is the longest-running single host is spiritually-based radio-internet talk show in America. It's been on the air for over 25 years. I bring you information about the disease of addiction, about your purpose in life, and investigative reporting on truth just below the surface. The program today is going to answer the question, is There an Afterlife? Um, my guess is Suzanne Fulter. Her book is Free-Spirited. Uh, this incredible but true story proves the afterlife and that those who have passed on have the power to heal us. A heart-opening page-turner that will change your view of death and life forever. When Teal, and Teal was the author's daughter, decided to become a healer at the age of 22, the last thing she expected was that she would die within the year. As her mother, Suzanne, watched her die from a medically unexplained cardiac arrest, a voice told her, Teal's death would not be in vain. Instead, it would heal Suzanne's broken, driven, workaholic life. This is a story of how Teal's energy has appeared in visions, dreams, whisperings, and a tingling, channeled laughter that left Suzanne uplifted, inspired, and healed. Suzanne um, is a author, and I'll let her tell you about some of the things that she's done in her life as we get ready to discuss Free Spirited. Hi, Suzanne.
1: Hi, Wynn. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be with you.
0: Um, fill in whatever you think is important that the people listening to that <laughs> who would like to know about your life.
1: Well, I will, and, and you know, what I, what I think is the point of this book is that I had many, many direct and profound experiences of my daughter in the afterlife, but also I got through a really, really massive crisis by surrendering to it and allowing it to change me however I needed to be changed, and believe me, I needed it. I think the pivotal experience that began the whole thing was that the night of her collapse, and I had just had dinner with her two hours prior in a restaurant in San Francisco, and, uh, you know, she'd been acting a little strange in that that dinner, and in fact, she had epilepsy, a very well-controlled case of it. And what happened, basically, is something that very, very rarely happens in epilepsy, which is that she just died from a medically unexplainable cardiac arrest. there is no cause of death. And when I got that call that she was in, um, she was in critical condition in the ICU and I raced to the hospital, what I found um, was that uh, first of all she was she never regained consciousness after her cardiac arrest and was in a locked bathroom and you know her brain, was severely damaged. So she never regained consciousness until six six days later, we took her off life support. But the minute I saw her in this hospital room, I had a deep understanding that just came through my body, very much like a whispering from spirit telling me that she would die and I would be changed forever. And my life was going to have to get a whole lot better, and I was going to have to become a much better person to be able to carry on this healing work that Teal wanted to do in her short life.
0: Um, she had an epileptic seizure prior to the cardiac arrest?
1: Nobody knows. And I, the really interesting thing about this is there's a condition called sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, SUDEP. And the world's leading expert happened to be her neurologist in New York. Uh, she was a traveling person who was always moving around. So New York was a home base. And um, I spoke to him several years after her death, and he had been able to look at her brain tissue, from the uh, which he'd received from the autopsy, and he said he thought there may have been a massive cardiac arrest, but he didn't I mean a, a massive seizure, but he didn't even know. And um, you know, uncertain. The crazy thing is, the day after her collapse, she was about to begin taking classes to be a healer. And she really wanted to be that healer. And uh, you know, the the description of this book is very accurate when it says she had no idea she would die. Uh,
0: what year was that? That
1: was 2012, 10 years ago.
0: 10 years ago. You know, these days, if a young person has a cardiac arrest that can't be explained, you ask them if they've been vaccinated because there's a relationship between Having that uh, mRNA vaccine and sudden unexplained death, but ten years ago that wouldn't have been the problem. So uh, it's very interesting uh, to try to figure out why a young person would die unexplainably with a cardiac arrest, and you know it's just um, it's just very unusual. Um, now. I've been in the field of addiction for hmm, 30, 40 years and have talked to people all over the world about their various addictive behaviors. Um, you have had some addictive behaviors, have you not?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And do you think?
1: that was? Yeah, that was one of the things I knew I had to improve or clean up or change as a result of her death.
0: And did you think that somehow or the other, that the experience with Teal could heal you from those addictive behavioral problems?
1: Well, the addictive behaviors were a real symptom of feeling broken and empty. And I was a workaholic, as you've mentioned. I was also uh, addicted to betting and compulsive shopping around my business, and I had a lot of behaviors that were just really not helpful to my well-being, and they were all about frantically moving in circles, trying to make something happen, and feeling lost and feeling confused. I had... Um, changed my life pretty dramatically. I moved from upstate New York to California, and I had come out as a lesbian, and I had uh, left my marriage, and I just everything had changed in a very short period of time, um, just before her death. And I was overworking, and I had just burned out on my business and closed it, and I wasn't even sure where I wanted to live, and I, I, mean, I had just surrendered everything. And what was really crazy about it was that even though Teal's death was so shocking and so wrong in so many ways, I knew it was God's will, and I knew I had to go with it, and I knew that this was going to take me back to a much deeper connection to myself. And the first thing I did, because I was kind of new in town and didn't know anybody, was I went into 12-step recovery, and I knew I could find... People who I understood and who understood me. I had been in 12-step recovery for financial addictions earlier in my life. And then I had moved to a very rural place where in those days we didn't have Zoom meetings or phone meetings. And I um, just started going to meetings. And I met this whole community of people who became a huge, huge source of support for me. Because that was the first thing I learned was self-care. How to take care of myself and basic to that was reaching out to people and letting people support me.
0: Well, that certainly is very important whether you have suffered from a major addiction or not. It's great to have support and community to back you up, especially in these days in the world where everything's so crazy. Yeah. So you had the addiction of alcoholism And I think in the book you said that you had love addiction. Can you tell me what that yes. is?
1: <laughs> that was really interesting because I had no idea. And uh, prior to Teal's death, I had been in a really difficult relationship, my first lesbian relationship that was, you know, a so-called committed relationship. But I had chosen a person who I really was not uh, in a healthy dynamic with at all. I felt totally dependent on this person's approval. And this person had the habit of being love avoidant. So I was a needy person and she was an avoidant person. And that is the love addiction dynamic writ large. That's it. Um, I joined a group. Uh, you know, if you 12 step love addiction, if you excuse me, if you Google 12 step and love addiction, you can find resources. And I joined one of these groups of recovering love addicts. And I found there were all kinds of people with all kinds of problems. And some were people who were sex addicts, and they were going into uh, all kinds of, you know, places, bars, etc, and picking people up. Other people were um, uh, addicted to romance novels and romances in general, to the point where they couldn't do their work, they were not available to their kids, et cetera. And in my case, I was addicted to a person. And every, my my son rose and sat on this woman. And you know, there came a day when she said, you know, I'm really not in love with you. I've never been in love with you. By then I had given up my apartment and moved in with her to another city. I had let go of whatever little structure I had, and um, I left, and I didn't have a place to go. This was about a month before Teal's death, and I, like I said, I put my stuff in storage, and I just started driving around all these communities in the Bay Area trying to figure out where I wanted to live and living in Airbnbs, and I was completely unsettled, completely unmoored, and I had to really admit, the first thing I had to admit was my part in that very unhealthy dynamic. So that's what I can tell you about love addiction, and that was really helpful to me, the support of that program and working those steps.
0: Well, I think that the 12-step concept is a very important concept. Uh, it's not a curative concept, in my opinion, but uh, for, for what it does for the greatest good, for the greatest number of people. Is certainly something that everybody should be familiar with. Now, on page 55, you said, God always has a plan. I could not get away from one single sterling truth. My life was in shambles, and I had no choice but to become humble before God and my fellow addicts tell the truth and get on with my healing. How important is that realization to a person who is addicted to something that they want to get rid of? Absolutely critical
1: because the thing you never want to admit is that you're powerless. You don't want to admit that there is a higher energy or a higher power or spiritual guidance because you feel like you're in charge of your life. And why wouldn't we? We have egos where these, you know, humans walking around in a human experience or maybe even spiritual beings walking around in a human experience, as I hear some people say. But the truth of the matter is there are circumstances that are bigger than us sometimes and bigger than our personalities can hold and navigate. And um, the, the healing aspect of losing someone or going through a great loss like losing a child, is that you are forced to just stop. Everything stops. And you're forced to look at what's around you and with correct support, whatever that may be for you, whether it's 12-step or family or grief support or spiritual counselor, you get to look at your life. And for me, I had to become humble. I had to You know, humility for me involved telling the truth and being very real and listening to other people tell their truth, which inspired me. Suddenly it was okay to admit that I'd been in this broken relationship, that I had spent compulsively on my business, that I had too much debt, that I was financially disorganized, that I had, you know, sacrificed parts of my relationship with my kids because I had worked all the time. And yet had little to show for it. You know, I had to tell these truths. And before Teal's death, I was feeling like, okay, I, you know, okay, things don't look so great right now, but I am great. Everything's terrific. Everything was really not terrific when, but I could not admit that truth because it would mean being humble and certainly being humble before God because God was asking me to clean up my act and, and improve What was so clearly in need of improvement?
0: You said you can't run from your own weaknesses. Sooner or later, they will overtake you, if you're lucky. For (laughs) only then can you truly begin to recover. Um, Is that what happened? Your weaknesses overtook you?
1: Yeah. I felt, you know, what the addicts call my bottom. I mean, I was grief-stricken, obviously, but not only was I grief-stricken, because of the choices I'd made, I had a total case of burnout from my work, I had lost my home because of this failed relationship, I had no structure, and I was completely lost, and I really think that the intention was to reduce me to rubble, basically, so I could very slowly rebuild, some would say, in the image of God, or rebuild the way God is showing me to rebuild, rebuild myself in a way that not only could help me heal and put me back together, but really honor this healing legacy my daughter had left behind. You know, the subtitle of this book is How My Daughter Healed Me from the Afterlife, because my daughter's energy was around me, and she left behind beautiful notebooks filled with her own prayers and her own connection to her spiritual guidance. And I had felt so moved by those. And they gave me a sense of direction. It was a starting place. And then to be able to go into 12-step recovery as a channel towards getting back to God, you know, that was very important for me as well.
0: On page uh, fifty nine, you said my mind kept replaying various scenarios about how I could have saved Teal. Do you think that that's reality—that you could have saved her?
1: No. <laughs> In fact, I was so concerned about that that I talked to some neurologists who were, you know, I knew, and they said not only could you have not saved her. Uh, She was alone in a locked bathroom in her apartment, and she just collapsed. And, you know, I had the choice to drive her home myself, but I was already seeing that Till was in, you know, probably having absence seizures, but they were so subtle it was hard to tell. So I just couldn't tell. And, you know, I was quick to shame myself because even though I thought I was hot stuff at the time in my life, Because I wasn't really telling the truth about my life. Behind it all was a deep core of shame. So, you know, we go to shame in moments like this. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says one of the stages of grief is bargaining. If I had done this, that would have happened. And I definitely went through that. I thought I could have, you know, gone and driven her home. Or I could have insisted she go to the emergency room. Well, I didn't see it. And I couldn't have done it. And if I didn't see it, I couldn't have helped. And, you know, I connected with her own spirit, and she told me, you know, how I died was not important. What I saw as I died was how flawed we all are as humans, how extremely, you know, petty our concerns are, how extremely meaningless all the pain and suffering in our lives actually is in the bigger scheme of things and how much we punish ourselves with it. It's a life of suffering that we are given, and so we have to learn to navigate it.
0: Oh, that's true. Now, explain this to me. On page 60, you said that Teal said to you, just be in flow, Mom, and be in flow and be in flow. (laughs) What does that mean? I
1: know. A mysterious thing, right? Added to that was a note she wrote throughout her notebooks that said, just be, or be and you know. And what that really means is, as I've been able to interpret it, allow myself to tune into my guidance, to tune into God, to tune into spirit, to tune into that great presence, and feel into the bliss of it in my meditations, in my daily actions, and ask. What is my next right action? What is it that I'm supposed to do next and next and next? And let the path of least resistance guide me. Now, it sounds like a cop-out. It sounds like don't pay your taxes and don't get a job and don't do this and don't do that. No, no, if you really pay attention, you are guided to do the right thing, whether it is an act of kindness to a stranger, accepting somebody's differing opinion from your own, following guidance from, you know, authorities or people who are different from you, or whether it is taking a job when you don't have enough money. You know, you allow yourself to tap into the flow of life around you and let it show you what to do. I learned a little prayer called bless it or block it, and I've used it a lot. And what it has taught taught me is that when I have a question or a quandary, you know which is the direction to go professionally, this way or that, for instance. I'll ask God, show me, bless it or block it, and what I get often is something very surprising. Um, you know, I had a I had a lot of moments of uncertainty after Teal's death around my work because I couldn't work for two years. I was just completely grief stricken, and I lived on on my savings and very, very frugally. I lived for free in a friend's guest room. and God bless her. She was a sweetheart to just include me in her life. And I helped out around the house and took care of things. And she appreciated that. She was my good buddy. And um, during that time, I was really praying and asking for some sort of guidance. Like, what am I supposed to be doing? And I kept trying to start my old business, even though I knew intuitively it was wrong, even though I knew it would fail, and it did, and um, you know, I launched one particular business that had been all lined up and ready to go at the time of Teal's death, and uh, you know, I forced myself to do it, even though I was in no shape to coach people, and what is really crazy is um, somebody had hacked into the learning platform website for that course. Had completely destroyed it, they'd taken it down. And then my webmaster put it up again and they took it down again. And this happened six more times until finally the malware that had been deposited into my um, webmaster's <laughs> computer started eating her hard drive. So it was like, okay, I'm not gonna launch that course. That is my intentions being blocked and I will surrender. Because again and again, I was told surrender, and eventually employment did come. But not till I was ready. I had to be in the flow of life and let it show me where to go and what to do next.
0: Uh, on page 63, you said, All my life as a mother, I rushed my kids, my former husband, myself. We all marched to the urgent, commanding rhythm in my head, doing, striving, pushing, achieving. Teal had had enough of it by the time she died, hence her silent quest while she lay in a coma in the hospital. Don't rush me, Mom. What is, what is this about rushing? Why, do you, why did you want to rush?
1: I, I think it's such a good question and I've grappled with it a lot. All I know is I don't know why I felt I needed to rush everybody around me. It had something to do with being emotionally detached, and it was easier to remain emotionally detached if I was rushing and accomplishing things. I would get a little adrenaline hit from accomplishment. Um, I don't know why I had to control others with that, but it was harmful, I think. I know. Um, and It was definitely harmful to me. And what I think is the big learning for me, Wynn, is that I did learn to slow down. And I continue to wrestle with this idea of accomplishing less, as if that will make me less of a person. But what it has made me is more of a family member and more of a friend and more of a wife and more of a mother to my remaining son and, and more connected to Teal in the great beyond, because when I slowed down, I learned how to tune into myself and meet my needs. That's the thing I was never doing. I didn't know I was a workaholic because I was too wound up to even see it, you know, and that's the thing about slowing down. It forces you to tell the truth about your life and to feel the feelings that are behind all that adrenaline rush and and quick movement and, and achievement and accomplishment, et cetera, et cetera great to accomplish things. I'm not saying I'm against success. I'm saying we can substitute success for happiness sometimes.
0: Yes. Um, I, have, I have a page marked here but I, I read your book long enough in the past that I can't remember the pertinent thing. Maybe you can bring me up to speed. What was the thing about Kate that you wanted to tell people? Kate? Kate.
1: T-A-T-E?
0: K-A-T-E.
1: I'm sorry, I didn't get the word. Oh, Kate.
0: K-A-T-E.
1: Oh, Kate. Kate, Kate, Kate. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. I thought you were saying Kate. I was like, oh, there's no Tate in the book. Okay, yes. Okay, so... On the first anniversary of Teal's death, I was at the home of my former husband, with whom I had remained uh, friendly and and connected, and I was sleeping in Teal's bedroom, and um, I had this profound experience of a conversation on the phone with my good friend, Kate Evans, who's a fellow writer, and, um, you know... I just suddenly had this incredible experience talking to her where I could see everything that was happening to me was exactly as it should be. And as I was talking to Kate, she began telling me a story about how she had had a seizure recently in a house on a street called Teal Lane, which was just such a weird detail <laughs> And I was listening got my attention. And as she talked, I had this very visceral experience of spirit entering my body and telling me something that Kate and I both needed to know, which is that we were now being given the job of being receptors. And receptors are, are in biological science, receptors are cells that let things at, in from the outside and pass them through to the other side. In this case, it felt like we were receiving messages from the afterlife and passing them into the waking, walking world in our work as writers. And I had felt that way for a long time already as a writer. I'd always felt spiritually connected when I wrote. And you know, I had taught people at different times about writing and uh, that spiritual connection. And what I what I really got was deep confirmation that somehow the writing would become uh, part of Teal's healing legacy. And sure enough, uh, several years later, I published the Extremely Busy Woman's Guide to Self Care, which is a book about self care, which was very much about the self care I learned after Teal's death. And you know, some of the little quotes from her journal are in the book, and and it's all you know very much about this slowing down and going within healing message. So that is the story about Kate, with whom I remain deeply connected. She's a good friend.
0: Now on page 74, you said, I understood the crushing fear of people that had consumed me all my life. It was an open wound that could not be touched. Over it, I had placed the Band-Aid of my arrogance, my greed, my ambition, and my unkindness. Can you uh, explain that to me?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I had a lot of trauma as a child, Uh, alcoholic mother, abuser, um, uh, abuse from the kids in my life at school, et cetera. And I learned to be afraid of people. And the way I had coped was just hustling along and trying to be as uh, busy and in charge and powerful as I could be, because I thought if I did that, I would have power over their ability to cause me pain. And what I didn't see was that all that powerful doing and, you know, toing and froing and doing this and doing that and bashing people around and being unkind and taking, taking issue with, with uh, how people were doing things and needing to do it myself in a better way, et cetera, et cetera. All of that bossiness and ambition and control behavior, controlling behavior, it was about me being afraid to just be me with people. And you know, all my life I've been told I didn't listen. You're not a good listener. You're not a good listener. And you know, after Teal's death, doing my recovery work, et cetera, I have learned how to keep my mouth shut and how to listen to people. The old acronym is W-A-I-T, why am I talking? (laughs) I love that because what it's taught me is I don't need to be impressive. I don't need to be in charge of this conversation. I don't need to tell this person what to do. I don't need to control this outcome. It's God's will. It's not mine. And what I can do instead is relax and discover who this person is, which became this wonderful experience of slowing down enough to listen, really listen, and then allow myself to just be with this person. And I found if you were quiet, people would unfold in front of you and really let you in. And it was very, very pleasant. And I started really loving hanging out with people. It was just such a joy and it still
0: is the idea of being a a great conversationalist is in the idea that god gave us two ears and one mouth so maybe we should listen twice as much as we talk
1: (laughs) perfect i love it
0: yeah now on page 89 you talk about the meta prayer I wasn't uh, familiar with that prayer can you say something about it
1: well I I can only t- I don't know the <clears throat> excuse me I don't know the origins of the meta prayer but the meta prayer is may I be happy may I know my true worth may I know I am lovable and may I love and be loved with ease I, I believe it's a Uh, I believe it's a Buddhist prayer of some kind. And it was taught to me by my dating coaches who really understood that it was a lack of self-worth that was causing stress in my life. Because at the time, now I had been alone um, going through this grief for two years at this point uh, when I discovered the Metta Prayer and began using it. And what was really great about it was that the meta prayer forced me to confront the tenderness underneath all of my tough stuff, you know? And as I said that prayer, especially the line, May I know myself worth May I love and be loved with ease. I just could barely get through it because it made me cry so much. I, I mean, of course, I was very vulnerable to begin with because I was grieving. But, on top of that, I had moved through enough of my grief that I was ready to find a partner, and I was ready to go back out in the world and establish a place to live and pick a city and you know really engage with life and Shortly after I started saying this prayer, I actually met the woman who I married and moved to Oakland, and we have a life here and And what I know now to be true is that by being in this question of may I love and be loved with ease, may I know my value, may I know my self-worth, may I know my self-worth, you know, these are, these are big concepts and so easy to not see how we cut them off, how we shortchange ourselves, how we run from our own innate worth, how we block the wisdom that we've been given
0: out of fear. Um, the underlying principle of my work with addiction over the last 40 years is that addictions are caused and maintained by an individual's low self-esteem. They don't know their true value and because they don't know their true value, they do things to themselves and other people that result in addictions and result in all kinds of dysfunction. Um, I think that that's what you're hitting upon here. Um, Perhaps you say it a little different way and everything, but I have found that if a person can increase their self-esteem uh, and see how valuable that they are as a person, and understand that truth, uh, their whole life will change. So yeah, yeah. So you're a good example.
1: Agreed. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Uh, on one seventy four, you said the God given gift of life is available to all. Who do not fear death. Now, my newest book, uh, which is about 30 days away from publication, is um, most people want to go to heaven, but hardly anyone wants to die.
1: <laughs> yep, and, <laughs> that's it in a nutshell.
0: And they have a fear of death, like you just said. But if you have no fear of death, you can live a life that is so larger because you're not worried about what's going to happen to you on that day that you die. And I think that's an important concept to to understand. And you can get that book at Amazon.com within the month, and my uh, last book on addiction, Freedom From Addiction 4, number four, the final message is available uh, right now as a Kindle book and will be available as a um, self-bound book, possibly a hardback uh, within the month. So you can uh, go over to Amazon.com and check out those books you want to tell the people how they should uh, get a copy of your book, Free Spirited?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Free Spirited How My Daughter Healed Me from the Afterlife uh, is available on Amazon in paperback, audiobook, and ebook. My name is Suzanne Falter, F A L T E R. And if you write into the Amazon search bar, Free Spirited Falter, F-A-L-T-E-R. It'll pop right up. It has a blue cover. It's number one in um, Greece and death and 13 in spirituality and religion. And it's doing really well right now, I'm pleased to say. And uh, I appreciate the chance to share it with your listeners.
0: Well, I think that uh, for a book reader, and um, most people are not, this would be a <laughs> good way to spend a bucks. to read Suzanne's book. Uh, Oh, thank you. You know, there's approximately a million new books published every year, so your competition is one in a million, unless, Mm. like me, you get out more than one book in a year. But in any any way, it's uh, it's not something that's an easy path to riches. So I don't write <laughs> I don't write for riches I write to influence the world so um,
1: right.
0: I, I wanted to say that anybody listening that wants to be an author and everything you need to know why you're writing that's mm-hmm. sometimes much more important than knowing what to write but, but hey Suzanne it's been great talking with you today and I give you the uh, last opportunity to add anything that you think is important that you want people to, to know uh, about you, your book, your daughter, or whatever. Uh, go ahead, take the microphone.
1: Thank you. Um, if people are curious about Teal, and she was a very unique being with a high level of spiritual uh, involvement, really, uh, you can go to com, my website. And you click on About, and there's an About teal button, and she was a blues singer who traveled the world with her little guitar, making people happy and healing with her life and her music and her example. And you can um, find out more about me and my work, and I would love to see you there.
0: Thank you. Well, that's great. Uh, I hope everybody takes that information to heart and does something with it. Uh, The difference between knowing something and accomplishing something is the action step. You can know a lot of things, but if you never put that knowledge into an action step, you'll never get the the good that you could have had from it. True. Now, I've been um, doing this for many, many years, and whether you've been following me for a year or 25 years or longer, I wanted to tell you that my mission or purpose in life is to spread the message that there is a cure for every addictive behavior and this is a spiritual cure and the treatment program is profiled in my book freedom from addiction four that's the number four the final message if you meet three simple criteria everyone cures their addiction my book is now available on Kindle at Amazon.com, soon to be available in paperback. I have three free resources where you can start your journey. The first is a link to this podcast, and the link is freedomfromaddiction.libson.com. No um, capitals, no spaces, and you spell Libson, L-I-B as in boy, S-Y-N com. I've got hundreds of programs that cover the whole range of things that you might be interested in. And you can go back in in the archives and find out things back for 25 years. Uh, The uh, second thing is the website is... Freedom from Addiction for the number dot com. And the final resource is my Twitter account. You would search at Hugo the Artist on Twitter.com, and you're going to find over 2,300 inspirational and educational pearls of wisdom. So, as I leave you today, I hope that you will tell your family, friends, and associates about uh, this podcast and uh, subscribe to it is free because you will find out the truth just below the surface and Suzanne thank you so much for making this a wonderful program today
1: thank you